Today, or this weekend, I should say, is the 25th Sunday after Pentecost, the end of that ordinary time, and the assigned gospel text comes out of Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite of the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars, rumors of wars, not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. The gospel of the Lord. Well, people of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. There is a song that comes to mind for me whenever I hear this passage. It's by the great band Journey. You might recognize it. And there's one line in particular that I really think of that has to do with my own experience whenever I hear this particular passage. I'm just a small town boy, born and raised in South Detroit. That's actually not accurate at all. I think I've only been in Detroit like once or twice flying through the airport. Definitely never spent any time there, so that's not accurate. What would probably be more fitting for my experience, doesn't sound as cool, but it's just a small town boy, born and raised in Northwest Iowa on a farm. It's more accurate, just doesn't sound as catchy. I can think about this though, I am a farm kid. I am a small town Iowa boy born and raised, and I can remember in my formative years as I was growing up, especially like being a teenager in high school, I can remember going to the big city and being like, whoa, this is incredible. Full disclosure, the first time I really remember that was Des Moines, which in the grand scheme of things is not that big of a city. But I also remember it happening my freshman year of high school when I went on a music department trip for my high school to Chicago. That was the first really big city I, I remember going to. And I can remember, it was actually my 14th birthday was the day that we went. And we visited what was at that time called the Sears Tower. I think they call it the Willis Tower now. One of the tallest buildings in the United States. It's not the tallest one, but it ranks right up there. And I can remember this small town boy getting out of the bus that we were on right on the sidewalk there by the, the, by the Sears Tower and looking up at it at this enormous monstrosity of a building that was so big, it seemed like it was leaning over looking down at me. It was just too big to wrap my head around. And I can remember thinking, how does someone even begin to build something like this? And it's so big, nothing could ever happen to it. I have that same sort of sensibility sometimes when I bump into uh, different naturally occurring phenomenon, like a mountain. I spend a lot of time in the mountains. Or when I stand next to the ocean. Now, I've talked about this in various video messages before, about when I stand next to the ocean, it reminds me that I am very small, that it is very big, it's way bigger than I am, and I am very small in the grand scheme of things. I think 
all of this type of mentality, this idea of things that are so much bigger than we are, so big we can't even begin to wrap our heads around, are something that are maybe shared with our disciples from the story today. Now let me set the scene. This occurs in the city of Jerusalem. And there, we hear that they're coming out of the temple. Now the temple was one of the single most important places in the Jewish culture at that time and had been for a long, long, long time. It was in the capital. Jerusalem was considered the capital. And this was the center of their culture. This was the place of worship. And not only that, this was the place where God had promised to dwell among the people. So this is where they came together for worship. This is where they came to experience God. It was so, so important. And because of that, it was also incredible in terms of its design and its construction. We hear that the disciples, who themselves were just small town boys, born and raised in northern Galilee. I swear, I'm going to stop doing that now. But they were small town guys as well. And while they had probably been in Jerusalem before and had probably seen all of this stuff before, it stands to reason that these small town guys, when they come into it and they see it, of course, it's, it's amazing no matter how many times they encounter it. And it was something to behold. All reports that we have were that the temple was incredible, and it was huge. And the, the stones that they're talking about, we're not just talking about like some little foot-long paver stone. Some of, the, of what archaeologists have uncovered are stones that themselves, single piece of, of rock, hewn out of rock, was, was like 20 or 30 feet long. They were enormous. Just the size and the, 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 the scope of them would blow the imagination of, of the disciples that were there. And that's what they seem to be reacting to. They're looking around, and they're like, look at this. This is incredible. And what, even though it doesn't say it, it probably is the implication of saying, wow, this is so amazing. Nothing could ever happen to this. But Jesus slaps that idea down pretty quick, doesn't he? He says, you see all of these, these stones and these buildings. I tell you, there will come a day when not one stone will be left on another. All of them will be thrown down. I can only think that this revelation that Jesus makes to the disciples, this prediction that he makes to the disciples, utterly melts their minds, and they're wondering what to make of it. How can this be? On one hand, it's so big and so amazing that it seems impossible that anything could ever happen to it. And also, on top of it, this is where God has promised to be. This is where God has promised to dwell among us. Nothing bad could ever happen to it. Within the narration of the story, we have a little jump in time, and we know that simply because of the geography. They've come out of the, of the temple, which itself is lying on one mountain in the middle of, of, uh, of Jerusalem. And then pretty soon they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. Now, between these two mountains is a very, very deep valley, and they would have had to walk there. So there has been this passage of time while Jesus and the disciples have gone down in the valley and then gone back up on the Mount of Olives, and then they sat down and they're looking at it. And I can only imagine that during this time, the disciples are probably talking amongst themselves, like, what do you think Jesus is talking about? And we don't really understand it. And they're scratching their heads, and they don't know what to make of it. And so finally, we hear the original four disciples, the big four, I sometimes call them. We got Peter and Andrew and James and John. They kind of pulled Jesus aside, and they said, Jesus, when is this going to happen? And what is the sign that it's about to happen? We want to be prepared. We want to know when this is going to go on. Now, Jesus begins to teach them, and he kind of pushes back a little bit, and he starts talking about this bit of apocalyptic or, or, or end timesy type prediction. Like, you're going to hear about this type of stuff, and you're going to wonder, when is this all this going to happen? But I think what Jesus is really revealing 
is a very, very common human tendency. We want to know when the bad stuff is coming our way so we can brace ourselves, so we can prepare ourselves. And we're not good at living in the tension of the unknown. Now, for the disciples, again, this idea of the destruction of the temple, that to them had to have seemed like that's, that's got to be it. It can't get any worse than that. But in, in, if that's really what's lying behind it, they're forgetting their history. And history is important because the temple, the original temple, had been built by King Solomon about 900 years before this. And it had lasted for several centuries, but then roughly the year 550 BC, about 550 years before this all occurred, the Babylonian Empire came in and utterly destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple. So the temple, originally constructed to be the house of God, had already been destroyed. Now, clearly it had been rebuilt, and it was a couple hundred years later. They rebuilt it again, and it had stood, and it had been the center of worship again, and is still there when Jesus and the disciples are around. But they're forgetting the fact that this amazing, uh, immovable thing, this thing that will, be, will last forever, had already been destroyed once before. Interestingly enough, about 30 years after this happened, the same thing would happen again. The Roman Empire would come in because the, the, the Jewish nation was getting a little uh, pushing back. They were getting a little uppity. They were rebelling just a little bit. And so this amazing temple had been destroyed again. And it's considered, it's thought that the, by the time Mark's gospel was written, that had already happened. So Mark's audience would all have been like, oh, Jesus warned us about this. And now look, it has happened. Now what? Where do we go from here? Now that that which seemed impossible happened. When I think about all of this stuff going on, all of this idea, I can't blame the disciples for getting bogged down in that which seems impossible to them. This building is so incredible, nothing could ever happen to it. The Sears Tower is so amazing, nothing could ever happen to it. Mountains are so amazing, nothing could ever happen to them, but that's not the case, is it? When we think along those lines, we are revealing the very limited nature of both our lifespan and our observation. Think about it. In the grand scheme of things, human lifespan, what, 80 years, give or take, is not even a blip on the radar. Think about it. What we can observe is very, very, very limited. And in the immediate our observation is really limited to what we can see right here, isn't it? That's how we experience the flow of time. And yes, we can remember and we can, we can wonder about the future, but we're limited to experiencing things right here, right now. And think about mountains. I'm going to come back to that. I've talked before about how I have the tendency to spend time in the mountains. And when I say the mountains, I'm talking about the Rocky Mountains, which are the big ones here in the United States. But we have another major mountain range the Appalachians. And I've been out to the East Coast before. And when I drove through the Appalachian Mountains, mountain is not the word that I would use to describe it. I would describe them as rather large, very rolling, very up and down hills. And why? Well, because they've been worn down so much. Observation and, and information that we have been able to find has shown us that the Appalachians are a much older mountain range than the Rocky Mountains. And they've been worn down the passage of time is always gonna win against that. Even if we look at it and we think nothing could ever happen to that, time has other things to say about it. This is this idea 
that we're living in, this tension that we're living in, the limitations of our limited existence and our observation, which is right here. But Jesus is reminding us of something else, something out there in the unknown future, which points to the reality that this existence that we are all a part of, this reality that we are a part of is not everlasting. There will be an end to it. Now, we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. We wonder how it's going to happen. And we really wish we knew, don't we? These are questions that I bump into in my work as a pastor with a fair bit of regularity. People are always asking me, hey, what's the end times going to look like? And when's it going to happen? And are we in them now? And you know what? I have no idea. And sometimes I'm okay with that. And sometimes I want to know as well because that's human tendency. We want to know because if we know, then we feel like we're in control. But we're not in control, are we? What I think Jesus is revealing to us here and is really bringing us face to face and helping us acknowledge, not only in this particular passage, but through much of his passages, is that when we talk about things like the kingdom of heaven or God or things that are eternal, these are things or states of being or existence or whatever we want to call it that exists outside of time. Not just that it's going to last forever, but that it exists outside the reality of time. It is something that is utterly and completely different. But before that happens, there will be an end. And what we hear and what Jesus reminds us is that that end is not going to be pretty. That there will be difficulties, that there will be utterly horrible things. And what Jesus seems to be saying to the disciples is you think the destruction of the temple is bad, hold on to everything because it's going to get a whole lot worse. And that's just the beginning. This is true. This is our reality. And all we have to do is turn on the news to see that that tendency is out there and that things are rough and that things are not perfect and that this life that we live and the reality that we are part of is not perfect. Now, there's very good stuff in the world and there's very good stuff within each one of us, but there's also very bad things in the world and very bad stuff within each one of us as well. That is just the nature of this reality and this life and the brokenness that's a part of all of us in this good but flawed reality. What Jesus has done over and over and over again is invited us to live into the reality that the kingdom of heaven, whatever that means, has already come near to us, even now in the midst of this broken reality that we are a part of. And that invitation that we have received through Jesus is to live our lives right now as if that reality is actually true, because it is. In the meantime, we live in the tension the tension between living into this good existence as God has intended for us and also experience the brokenness that's still a part of it while living into the hope that there is more beyond it. I believe when Jesus tells us that bad stuff's going to happen, but this is just the beginning, he's also reminding us that the, in the, the ultimate end of all of this, that's not the end of all of this, that there is more to come and there's going to be rough stuff and in this life, we will have troubles, we will have difficulties, but there is more to come. And what is out there, which we do not understand, which we do not fully grasp and fully fathom, has been promised to each one of us, even when we can't fully grasp it, when we can't fully understand it, we don't know what it's going to look like. But regardless of our inability to know what that is going to look like out there, that needs to not be our only focus. Because if we live our lives right now, 
seeking that eternal get out of jail free card, which is all too often what we tend to think of when we look at idea of faith or heaven or eternal life or whatever, if we are living our lives now trying to figure out how to get ourselves to there, we're missing the mark of what Jesus has promised us and the opportunity to live our lives now in the reality of that unfulfilled promise. Now, I realize this is a lot to throw around. It's like, huh? We don't quite get it. And honestly, that's okay. There are days when none of us get it. And then there are days when we do kind of sort of seem to understand it. But regardless of where we're at in that up and down reality, let us cling to the hope that Jesus gives us. The promise that we have been given through the claim of God upon each one of us that our existence starts from a place of God's joy and delight. And even though this existence is flawed and broken and so are we, we can live into the promise that we are loved, claimed, and forgiven people. And when we mess up that harmony, which God hopes and intends for all of us, we can turn back to it again. When we're honest with ourselves, we're honest about the flaws that we have, and yet we claim the promise of God's grace and mercy given to each of us through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then, having done so, to recognize that that same claim also issues us an invitation to share that same good news, that same message 